Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. What does God expect of me? That's the question I want you to ask yourself. I am very concerned about challenging every believer to tighten up their Christian walk. I think it's very important in these days that we draw ourselves closer to God rather than seeing how far away we can get from that. There is another story, not really a joke, it's just a a story that's told about three men who had applied for a job of driving a truck on a treacherous mountain road. And each person applying for the job described how good their driving skills were on these narrow, very narrow, dangerous roads. And one said that he could put his tire within a foot of that and drive the whole way and and never drop off. And the next one wanting the job even more than the first guy said, I can hang half the tire over the edge and drive that whole way. And the third one said, uh, I won't go anywhere close to the edge. He got the job. I think in our Christian walk, sometimes we have people that in their own ego believe how close they can come to the edge and still live for God. My encouragement to you is, how far away can you stay from the edge? We have a lot of moral issues that we struggle with in this day and age. We typically, in uh, evangelicalism, uh, have have had a, a reserved and dim view of the use of alcohol. Uh, this has been more or less a mark of the 20th, 20, not so much 21st century church, but the 20th church 20th century church in the United States of America. The debate goes on, and certainly they keep revisiting that question, asking, should a Christian drink? And the argument is is always pretty predictable. The first thing is, well, Jesus drank. And then uh, the Bible doesn't say anything against drinking, and I I, I know all the arguments and everything, but... First of all, that's a, that's a misnomer to say Jesus drank. I mean, that's a whole other issue. But uh, I'm not, this is not my sermon today. This is just a side point. But it, it goes back to the truck on the edge. It, it goes back to, it, do we always really have to define our behavior by what the Bible specifically says thou shalt not do? Or should our behavior as Christians be defined more by uh, what is wise? Why should we live on the edge? What does that benefit us to hang half the tire over the edge and see if we can survive there? When really the wisdom would, would dictate for us that we stay away from those things that have any risk. Not only risk for ourselves, but risk for other people over whom we have influence. And especially as a parent. I always had to modify my behavior and consider more than what can I do and get away with, what can I handle, but more than that, what do I want my boys to do and experiment with? How far do I want them to go? So we tightened up the reins in our family. We raised them not to test how far you can go to the boundaries, but to figure out those things you do not need in your life that could put you at spiritual risk or put others at spiritual risk. That's what 
I think we need to keep revisiting here in the 21st century because of the direction that our world is going, because of what your kids are going to be exposed to as they grow up, and you really want to give them the best chance at making heaven their home, making Jesus Christ Lord, and not the best chance at getting uh, in bondage to something, living in the danger zone. What does God expect of me? And I, I think today, in these points I'm going to make in this sermon, it's going to have to do, first of all, with understanding the difficulty of this journey. And beyond that, as I develop this, what does God expect of me as a Christian? That's important for me to know. That is one of the key questions for today. What does he expect of me? And do you really care what God expects of you? Do you stay in communion with him every day, saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? Is that foremost in your life? Does that dictate the choices you make every day? Paul wrote to his protege, young Timothy, two letters. I choose from that second letter, and in the second chapter, Paul says, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Join with me in suffering. Now, there's the first indication, maybe, of what we should expect as Christians. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving us as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all of this. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel, for which I am suffering. And he goes back, repeats back to this idea of the difficulties of living the Christian life. Reflect on what I'm saying, so the Lord will give you insight. I'm suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. God's word is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here's a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will live with him. If we endure, and once again, a reference back to the challenge, the trials, and the suffering of living for Christ. If we endure, we'll reign with him. If we disown him, he'll disown us. And if we're faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. So I'm going to put right at the top of the list, what does God expect of me? As a Christian, I have to be willing to make the hard decisions. The first one is the decision to stand alone, to walk alone. I have to be willing to do that. What did you think you were signing up for? That was my optional title when I started this. What did you think you were signing up for? What did you think you were getting into when you put your name down? Whenever you decided to attach yourself to the church or the body of Christ. Were you under other impressions that this was just going to be another social club and you're going to find a way to fit in? Or do you realize that coming to Jesus and saying yes to him and making him Lord and Savior of your life requires of you to reevaluate your lifestyle and the choices you make? Did you think coming to Jesus was going to be all one-sided, that he's just going to shower you with all kinds of comfort 
and, and riches and, and ease, and it's going to be a, a walk through the garden? Or did you not realize that Jesus himself spoke of how difficult it was to follow him? If you want to be my disciple, take up your cross and follow me. That's a very challenging thing to say to somebody. That isn't, we're going to have a great time if you follow me. It means you're making a difficult choice. Standing alone or walking alone. And I use the word alone not to ignore the fact that we're not really truly alone when we're walking with the Lord. The Lord's walking with us. Now that's not alone. But let me use it in a narrower way. The word alone meaning that there will be times when you will be making decisions that are not popular. You'll be making decisions your friends would not make. Or you will not make the kind of decisions they, they do make. You'll be feeling many times like a salmon swimming upstream when everybody else is on a float trip. You'll be making difficult decisions. In the sense that you'll always, always, always be at odds with the values of this world. Always. And making hard decisions means that you will have to reject the world's values and adopt God's values, and that will leave you as being very, very obvious. Standing by yourself. It's a tough decision. You will be a single voice sometimes against a loud majority. You will be the one that people believes is out of touch, out of step. I remember reading the account of a young man who was marching with a band, but he didn't march well. Marching, of course, when you get the same leg going forward and get it in time, is a very synchronized thing to watch. But in the middle, midst of all these people marching, one person is totally out of step with everybody else. Is he tone deaf, musically challenged? What's going on? Uncoordinated? Why can't he march like everybody else? Until they investigated, he was actually wearing some earphones and listening to his own music. I suggest to you that the Christian is tuned into something different than the world. And when it looks like we're not marching in step, it's because we're listening to a different drummer. Listening to a different beat, we have another song in mind. And yes, it looks like we're out of tune with the world. The fact of the matter is, they're out of tune with God. You stand alone, you walk alone. Are you brave enough? Do you have enough spiritual courage to do that? I hope so. Because you'll be faced with that dilemma many times in your life. Young people will be faced with it many times. The peer pressure is tremendous in this day and age. You go to school and young people are almost by definition immature. And in their immaturity, they like to single out people who are different and ridicule them. Are you strong enough in your faith to stand alone? I've seen many a young people crumble because they just didn't like being a standout. They wanted to blend in. They didn't really want to blend in because of the spiritual cost of doing that. But on the other hand, they didn't want to be so, so obvious to people. So they ended up blending in and sacrificing Second thing is making the hard decisions is choosing the narrow rocky path 
instead of the wide paved road. And we, we draw this from Scripture, directly from Scripture. As Jesus taught us, that straight is the gate, narrow is the way that leads to life. The very opposite for that which leads to destruction. Uh, wide and broad is the gate and the way that leads to destruction. So a wise choice, what God expects of me in making hard choices is to realize I can't take the easy route. I have to be willing to take the right route. That's a tough decision. And there's a couple of important points brought out in this passage I've just referenced. Let me read the passage so we can get that fresh in our mind. Enter through the narrow gate. White is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. Underscore that word many. But small is the gate, or straight, and narrow is the way or the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Now, let's, let's extract a couple of very powerful truths just from this very brief passage. First of all, let's look at this as helping us to understand proportional numbers. There will always be more people taking the easy route than will enter through the straight and the narrow. Always. Even though we have today... Christians uh, numbering some 2.1 billion in the world, out of that, you've got to consider a lot of those just checked the box Christian without having a real walk with Jesus Christ. So you've eliminated a number of those there. But then compared to a world population of 7 billion, you understand there's always more people walking the broad way and getting through the wide gate than there are who will choose the straight and narrow. Every generation has been like that. I know we would like to think of a time when the whole world gets saved. Wouldn't it be nice if Christianity dominated the 7 billion that populate this world? But Jesus gave an illustration that said the majority will always go the wrong way. You have to be willing to go against the majority. You have to be willing to make the hard choice that they're not willing to make. Have you ever noticed that people who choose not to serve the Lord generally try to, to justify that by saying there is no God? I mean, the, the, the more distant they get from a life, the, the more they don't live a life that pleases the Lord, the more inclined they are just to dismiss the whole concept of there being a God. Because to acknowledge that there's a God suddenly requires them to be accountable to this God. So they just justify their lifestyle that they know does not please God if there was a God. They justify that by convincing themselves there is no God. Some of you perhaps listen to Charles Krauthammer from time to time, read him or listen to his comments on TV. And somebody asked him one time, I understand you're an atheist. He said, I do not believe in God, but I fear him greatly. And I think that's what position a lot of people are in. We don't believe in him because he does interfere with our lifestyle, but we're scared to death the whole time of this person that would refuse to serve. The second truth brought out by this passage is that truth is, by its very definition, a very narrow thing. I talked with a psychiatrist one time who was the psychiatrist that treated one of my best friends. It was in... Uh, a, a church I had pastored, and this man I had become acquainted with had previously, for most of his, his grown life, uh, up, up to the point that he got treatment, had been bipolar. And uh, we used to use a word manic depressive. It's, it's just oscillating between extreme highs and extreme lows in your life. 
And this young man was extremely bipolar. The things that he told me that he did in, in his uh, uh, manic cycles were, were just bizarre. Finally, he went to a psychiatrist, not because the psychiatrist. You, you realize psychiatrists are medical doctors as well. They have a, 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 an MD. And being a, a medical doctor, he, he's diagnosed and, and prescribed uh, lithium. Now, I was talking with the psychiatrist because I had done a little repair work, some carpentry work for him, and he liked my work. So he... he loaded me up with him and his wife and took me to Birmingham, Alabama, and uh, not from Iowa. <laughs> we were in Alabama at the time, and they wanted to go down and look at buying a house and wanted to bring me along and let me look over them, kind of a pre-inspection kind of a thing. And so with an hour or two to travel, we're talking and, and we're discussing, and he, he's, he's referring to uh, the bipolar. He says, uh, lithium. And he pointed to his little finger and just marked off the tip of it. So a little tablet of lithium. For, for some people, it doesn't solve everybody's problem, but he said, for some people, it's just, just lithium. He said, do you realize lithium is right next to salt on the periodic table? Now, I don't know a lot about the periodic table because it didn't matter to me when I was in high school. <laughs> I didn't realize that I would need to know this to preach. He said, it's right next to salt. Well, in the periodic table, you've got rows and you've got columns. Both are significant in the periodic table. The columns puts them in, in, in like metallic categories. And in this first column is lithium. Uh, and in this, uh, the, the, I think it's the second column. But it, the lithium is like number five, I think. You, and when he said right next to it, I'm thinking number six. Well, uh, sodium is like number 11, I think, number 12, number 11. Uh, so in this column, it's right below it. And I thought, well, that's not right next to it. But it does put it in the same family of metals. That means it's just a few, just a few modifications of the molecules away from being salt. Just, just a slight variation in its, in its composition. So he's, he's, he marvels at this. He said, You're salt. We're just almost talking about salt here. And you give a little bit of that, and poof, he's okay. Well, my friend was okay. And he took his lithium faithfully, and he was a brilliant carpenter, construction man. You would never know how of his difficulties and his challenges when he was not on his medication. It was so simple, but it had to be the right thing. See, it was lithium. Salt wouldn't fix him. It had to be lithium. See, narrow truth is a very narrow thing. You can't just get close to truth and it works. Truth is narrow. It's spot on. Or it's not truth. I don't know what a half truth is. Half truth is not true, is it? We've got other examples of that. But, you know, like, like the satellites that are... That are are placed in orbit exactly 22,236 miles above the equator and set at an orbit at exactly the speed of 1.91 miles per second, making a full orbit in 23.9344612233 hours, which is just short of a day. But the reason they do that is because after as the earth turns and this thing is speeding at, at, at that precise location in orbit, at that precise speed, it goes with us. So it's, it appears stationary. No matter how we rotate the earth, that thing stays right in the same spot because it's very precise. Anything that was a variance from that just wouldn't work. Truth is narrow. Truth is straight. The world suggests that truth is very, very broad, and it's subject to interpretation. And we, we might even think about one of the most popular and prevailing philosophies in, in the world today is all roads lead to God. But that's not truth. That's too broad. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. 
Nobody comes to the Father except through me. But the world doesn't like that. They want to think that everybody who's slightly religious somehow connects with God and everything's going to be okay in the end. But truth is straight. Truth is narrow. Christ was not one of many equal prophets. People won't find their way to God through any religion they choose, like a buffet. It's through Christ alone that we come to God the Father. Truth is narrow. And... I might say truth is straight. It's disturbing to see how many truths of the Bible are being shredded today. There's a lot of talk in this day and age of people shredding the Constitution. And I understand why that is an issue. Because there is a mentality today that that's an old, antiquated, outdated document that was written by people that didn't understand the things we would face today. I'm not saying I'm sympathetic. I say I understand the argument. And the argument is it's antiquated, and therefore these uh, rights, these Bill of Rights and the amendments that were made may have worked a long time ago, but they don't work anymore, they're saying. So they're shredding uh, rights of free speech, and they're uh, shredding Second Amendment, and they're shredding... Now, you know, it concerns me because as an American... We're messing with the documents that our founding fathers thought would serve us for a long time. But my concern for that is minuscule compared to the shredding of the Bible. That's the one that really gets me. Because we can argue politics all day long about the Constitution, but there is no room for argument about God's Word. Thy Word, O Lord, is established in the heavens forever. And I'm deeply concerned for those who take the word, the truth, and they begin to mince that on the same logic. It was written a long time ago. It was in an age that they didn't know what we were going to face. They think somehow the Bible and the Constitution are on equal weight. They don't even come close, my friend. Not even the same. There is a famous pastor, young pastor... Uh, and I'm going to use some terminology that I don't know if all of you are going to follow me, but emerging church, that's a very popular term in this day and age. If you don't know what it means, it just kind of refers to a, a new breed of church philosophy that kind of permeates, is really taking hold of our society today. It's really hard to define in two sentences or less, but emerging church because it is coming out of that traditional identification of the church that we have known for so very, very long. And I know the church has changed over the centuries, but emerging church means changing over the decade. Changes that may have taken hundreds of years to do in the church. Now they're changing more rapidly in a few years. That's the reason they call it church. One of the leading, most influential voices in the emerging church was a young pastor named Rob Bell. He wrote a number of, of very popular books. Uh, Velvet Elvis was one of those. That's an odd name for a Christian book, isn't it? Uh, another one was Love Wins. Now, by the time he got down to writing Love Wins, he had begun to tip his hand on some things that really concerned a lot of people because his whole concept of the book Love Wins has to do with God is such a God of, of love that, well, his, his summary was this. Everybody's going to make it because God's love. Love wins in the end. So it was a universalism is what it was about. And that began to really concern people about where's Rob Bell going with his theology. Then it wasn't too long ago that he uh, made the declaration that he didn't have any problems with, with uh, uh, homosexuality in his church. And it wasn't, wasn't just a matter of just people attending. He, he just thought it was a beautiful thing for two people to find love with each other. Now we're really growing concerned with his theology. He appeared on Oprah just recently. The news came out in the past two or three weeks. He appeared on Oprah, and he said this. Now, now, at first, he was trying to redefine what the Bible said. He was looking at the same scriptures we're saying, but he said, but it doesn't say that. 
doesn't mean that. Now, just recently he appeared on uh, a program that Oprah has. And he had told her, he said confidentially, he said, uh, the church is just a hair's breadth away from completely embracing homosexuality. And, of course, she applauded that. That's, that's wonderful news for her. And the reason that he believes that is because he said what was written in the Bible is old and outdated. Now, we've finally come to the point of understanding the problem here. At first, he was just shredding it and twisting it and making it read what he wanted to. Finally, he's come to the conclusion it's meaningless. It's irrelevant. What is relevant, he believes, is community. That's the most important thing. We just get along. We just accept everybody like they are. We just love one another right where they are, which is in line with where he was going with this book, Love Wins. Truth is straight. And truth is narrow. It doesn't meander all over the map. It's not just a collection of a few letters, even if we're only talking about New Testament. Not just a collection of a few letters written by fallible people putting down their own thoughts in a different culture 2,000 years ago has no application to us because they don't understand God is the author of Scripture. All Scripture is given by inspiration. He is the unchanging one. Those truths are unchanging. As a Christian... God expects me to make hard decisions. And the third hard decision is I have to accept the fact that I will be enduring a lot of difficult trials as a normal part of my journey. Everything I know about Christianity from reading the Bible, everything Christ taught us about the decision to following him, everything Paul teaches us about making that commitment to serve Jesus Christ, they all teach one thing clearly, and that is living for Jesus is going to cost you something. There is not another message that comes through louder and clearer than the simple thing, when you choose to serve Jesus Christ, you're making a difficult decision, and it's going to cost you, and you'll make... Hard decisions every day you live for Him. If you didn't understand that, you got in under the wrong assumptions. It will cost you something. It will demand something of you. Paul likened our Christian life to the military and the disciplines that goes along with that. He likened it to athleticism and the disciplines that goes along with being a good athlete. And he's implying that you're going to have to use a lot of self-discipline. Going to have to make the hard choices. In the very next chapter, after the chapter 2 where I read you our opening text, then Paul tells us this scripture that we're all fairly well familiar with. He says to Timothy, and all who will live godly in Christ Jesus... She'll suffer what, people? Persecution. He, he didn't hide this from anybody. It's going to cost you something. And time and time again, we're told how demanding and challenging it is to properly live for Jesus Christ. There are those who miscalculated the cost. There are those who mistakenly thought it was a joy ride. These people are offended when the time comes to make a tough decision. These are the ones that are greatly offended when Jesus teaches on eat my body and drink my blood because they didn't realize they got into this to have to make hard decisions. And many walked away, the Bible says. These are the seeds that fell on stony ground that when the sun came up, they had no root system and they were burned up because they couldn't endure the hardships that were to come. And I ask your patience as I once again make reference to that great work, Pilgrim's Progress, In allegory form, Bunyan describes the difficulties that we will face as Christians along our earthly journey on the way to our eternal home. And in one particular moving scene, young Christian who is traveling from the city of destruction to the eternal city, he he meets a lot of difficulties along the way. In allegory form, we read this. He's traveling along at this particular point in the story with his traveling companion called Hopeful. 
both of them come to a place where they get off of the straight and narrow and there's a very inviting meadow that they're going to go through, shortcut. So they decide, let's take the shortcut. This is a difficult road. And that's a nice, wide open meadow. Let's just cut through the meadow. Well, cutting through the meadow, they come to a castle. It's called Doubting Castle, and it's occupied by one giant despair. Giant despair takes them prisoner in his castle. And of course, we understand they are in great despair, as a Christian would be who gets off the straight and narrow. They are in bondage, and they're beginning to doubt. And soon Christian realizes that he has been given a key. And he remembers the key and pulls pulls it out, and the key is called promise. He uses the key, opens the shackles and and the cell door, and escapes and and makes his way back to the narrow pathway. What a powerful description of the Christian journey that we're tempted to cut through the meadow bypass. It looks so much easier than the course that we're on. But I said, God expects you to make tough decisions. You don't make those tough decisions. It's going to wreck your spiritual person. I promise you it will. The second thing that God expects of me as a Christian is I have to live out my faith. And I go to Ephesians 4.1 where Paul says, As a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. That word calling just causes a bunch of people to disconnect from what Paul is about to say. Because you're not a preacher, you're not a pastor, you're not a missionary. So now Paul's talking to those people who have a calling. But you have misunderstood and you're about to miss the most important nugget that Paul has to give in this passage if you think talking about the calling means talking about ministers. What he's talking about is you have been called out of darkness into the light. That's your calling. It's not talking about where you're going to go to work in the kingdom or what capacity you're going to minister. You have been called into salvation. Now, keep that in mind as we put this in the right context. He says, I urge you to live a life worthy of having been called out of darkness and into the light. Therefore, you have to live a life worthy of your salvation. You are called out of that darkness to live a life that is worthy of having been granted that condition in your life. Don't live like people who are still in darkness. Don't live like you did when you were in darkness. Live worthy of your calling. Don't live for the lust of the things of the world. Don't live a secret lifestyle. No more conversation like the world. When you've been brought out of darkness, you're expected to leave the darkness behind. That's what God expects of me. I can't live, I can't, I can't earn my salvation. I understand that. My salvation is by grace, it's through faith. Grace means I didn't deserve it. I can't deserve it. I never earned it. But living out my Christianity means that my salvation requires certain things of me. Are you listening to me, people? My relationship with God now requires certain things of me. I didn't have to do anything to earn it, but now that I've got it, there's some maintenance that goes along with it. First of all, I'm obligated to be an earthly witness for Christ. And Paul says to the Corinthians in the second book, in the fifth chapter, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. My duty, what God expects of me, is to be an ambassador for him and to act accordingly. I cannot call Christ my Lord and my Savior, and then make my will the driving force in my life. That wasn't the deal. 
you didn't understand that, you need to revisit your commitment. My deal was that it's no longer about me. It's about what God wants in my life. What pleases him, not what pleases me. How often do you stop in the day and ask yourself what I'm about to do, what I'm about to say, does this please God? Or does it embarrass the Holy Spirit? Now we're learning how to live according to our calling. As a born-again believer, you've been automatically recruited to be an ambassador. I don't know if you're aware of that or not. Number two, I must focus on practical Christianity, living out my faith. That means two things. Number one, my, my Christianity must be biblically based Pay particular attention to me here. One of the common faults we find in Christianity is people who have a tendency to make a religion out of their personal opinions, their personal philosophies, their personal convictions. And in doing so, they virtually build a spiritual prison for themselves. This was one of the marks of the Pharisees. They prided themselves in their adherence to legalism. They created things that created legalism. They created rules and regulations and laws. And then they, they, they evaluated how successfully they obeyed these rules and regulations. And then, with their own personal evaluation, they said, I'm pretty holy. I'm holier than he is. Jesus revealed this when he said, now there's two people that went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and one was a tax collector, a publican. And the Pharisee was over there praying by himself. And he starts praying to the Lord. And he said, Lord, I thank you. I'm not like other people. I fast twice a week. And I tithe. And he just happened to look over and there's this tax collector. And illustrated sermon time. And Lord, I'm not like him. Thank you, God. I'm better than all these people. Creating this life of bondage because they think that adhering to their own personal religions and convictions and persuasions and philosophies and theories makes them holier than everybody else. Now, here's the difference between holiness and legalism. Holiness has to do with pleasing the Lord in your own understanding of what he expects of you. That becomes legalistic when you judge everybody else. If this is not based on a clearly uh, uh, articulated precept of the Bible... You become legalistic when you begin to judge other people because they don't see everything just like you see it. Now, I'm one that I think there is value, personal value to me, not to do business with people who uh, are, are heavily involved in things that offend me. Now, this has been around for a while. It's called boycotting. And... And if I find out that there's some business or somebody that's, that's doing things that I, I think are uh, in direct opposition to what I stand for and what I believe in, uh, I don't like doing business with them. And I know that's a fuzzy line. Legalism is when I get up here and say, as the pastor of this church, I forbid any of you to eat at Good Booger anymore because I don't like what they do with their money. Because I think you ought to feel the same way about it that I do. It becomes legalistic then. But I have to live out my Christian faith in a biblical manner. Not in a personal philosophy manner. God expects me to do my very best to understand what he expects of me from his word and from the Holy Spirit. The second thing is living out my faith, my Christianity must be active. 
more than confession, more than profession, putting my faith into practice. In other words, like, like it says in the Bible, it, it's not good enough to, to tell somebody who is in need, go and be blessed. I will pray for you. Putting your Christianity into practice means you're going to be a blessing to those people. That's active Christianity, not just praying for somebody. I had a, a funny thing to happen to me years ago that I did not think was funny at all when it happened. But the more I think about it, the funnier it gets. Anne and I were pastoring a church that the, the previous pastor uh, had been making over $100,000 a year. And when he resigned that church and left, he told the board, you need to pay the next pastor $650 a week. And the board did. And I was the next pastor. He set my salary. So Ann and I took the church and raising three boys. How many of you know raising kids is expensive? Can I get an amen on that? That's the first time we've been in unanimity since. So the $650 a week, we were never able to get ahead. Every Christmas was on a credit card. The first Christmas, you know, if you don't have any money, you either skip that Christmas and save for the next one, or we put it on the credit card and spent the whole year paying it off. So we were behind. We were always behind, paying for last Christmas all year long. We, we cut everything we could cut. We didn't know what else to cut. I didn't, didn't have any cable TV. That was just one of the things. You, when you don't have money, you don't need cable TV. You just don't. Come on, people. That's not the basic staples of life. It isn't. And we were being very good stewards, trying to be good stewards of our money. Well, we... We had sold a house just before moving to this church and had a little bit of a nest egg that we ate it up, living off that nest egg just to make ends meet. And I finally, when I got to where I had nothing left, I'd spent all my savings, I went to the board and said, Guys, I hate to have to come to you and do this, but we're getting behind, and we have wiped out our savings. We can't make it. Well, they begin to suggest to me how to cut corners. I don't need a board to tell me how I need to. Have you done this? Have you done that? Guys, I need some help. So they listened. And when we were done, a board member came up to me privately. And he said, Pastor, he said, I want to be nosy. But he said, "Uh, how much are you falling behind? And I said, well, by my best estimates, $75 to $100 a month. We just are, we cannot make that up. It's, it's not there. It's not happening. And I'm thinking in my heart, thank you, God. I've got one board member that has a sensitive heart. And he said, I just wanted to know how to pray. And he left. <laughs> now it's funny. <laughs> I didn't laugh at the time, but... I think it's hilarious now. I have to live out my Christianity. I can't look at those that need and say, tell me what your need is. I just want to know how to pray. Responding to the Spirit in ministering, living an active faith, not just professing, but being and doing. You know, just the other day, I drove up in front of a store, and I'm not one that has to park in front, okay? Parking out on the back 40 doesn't bother me. I figure I need some exercise anytime I can get it. So I'm not one that has traffic backed up because I'm waiting for this person who's unloading, who's loading their groceries in the car to move it so I can have it. I don't do that. You can have it. So I'll park anywhere. But the parking lot, there was really very few places to park. And it just so happened there were two right in front of the store. Beautiful. And I thought, okay, you know, I I usually save that for other people. But 
I'll take it. So I pull up right in front of there, and this big honking long Cadillac from about the 1960s, early 60s. You remember how long those things? He pulls in, and it's so long that he can't park straight because it leaves out in the traffic. So he parked diagonal. And he got both spots, corner to corner. I'm not just saying a little bit across the line. He put her in there 45 degrees. And I stopped right there, whoop, like that. And I studied this for a minute. And then I went on and found the parking spot out in the boondocks, like I normally do anyway. Came into the store, and somebody in the store was watching the whole scene and came up to me and said, you were just a couple of seconds too late, weren't you? (laughs) Now, here's the reason I tell that story. Because somebody was watching me. So I had to replay the whole scene in my mind to remember what they saw. I didn't make any dirty gestures because I don't do that. I didn't give him a, a, a mouthing, you know, like people will do. They, you know you can't hear him, but if you just move your mouth big enough, it looks really intense. I didn't do any of that. I just went on. And it was a, it was a, a shock to me because it was suddenly a wake-up call. Somebody's watching you. When you think nobody's watching you, somebody's watching you. I have to live my Christianity in such a way that it doesn't bring reproach on Jesus Christ. I don't care if I was in my own car, out in the parking lot, at a strange store. Somebody's watching me. And most importantly, God's watching me. That's the most important thing. My final point, it'll be a very short one. As a Christian, must pursue We can't live in our Christianity out in a vacuum. It's not something we keep secret from our friends and our neighbors. It's not something we practice in private. We're evangelists. We are ambassadors. Remember, it's every one of us. And Jesus told his followers in that Sermon on the Mount, as he got through the Beatitudes, he dove right into a a couple of of, uh, metaphors there. He said, you are the salt of the earth, And he said a little bit about that. Then he said, you are the light of the world. Two things that he said to those followers of him. You are salt and you are light. Now, both of those very clearly have to do with influence. He said, you're the salt of the earth. Uh, If the salt has lost its savor, its potency, it is henceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and trod under foot of men. You're the light of the world. A city set on the hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a, uh, a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let men see your good works. Let your light therefore so shine that men may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So I've got salt and I've got light. In other words, Jesus was laying the heavy duty on me right there. He said, you have influence. You should have influence. But there's two ways that you cannot have influence. You might not have influence. Number one, you're salt. But if you've lost your effectiveness, you know how you lose your effectiveness? Bad witness. Whenever you're acting in a way that you think nobody can see you and you can get away with it, bad witness. You've lost your effectiveness. You might have been salt at one time, but you're not good for anything except to be just thrown out and trampled on by people. I have to watch my effectiveness. Your light. I have to let my light shine. I have to try and persuade others. I persuade others by the way I endure my trials. I remain an effective witness when I refuse to give up just because I had to face some trials. That doesn't sell anybody on God. Now, I know our nation is becoming more and more secular with each passing year. Church attendance is down. The number of professing Christians is dropping. And at the same time, I have to remember that there is no hope, no joy, 
no happiness, no true quality of life without Jesus Christ, which means a secularized society is ultimately a miserable and unfulfilled society. So I can look at this and say our nation is just on a fast track to hell and what are we going to do? Or I can say people who are Christless are looking for an answer. And the more secularized our nation gets, the more people are, are, are disgusted with what they are trying to fill their life with. The more unsatisfied they are and they're looking for something. And I have to remember in this this nation where the light is going down and the darkness is encroaching, I have to be a light. I have to be an influence. I have to persuade others. I have to show and demonstrate I have an answer. I have to point them to God. These people have left God behind. They're doing it their own way. And I have to Remember, they're looking for something. I've got what they're looking for. I have a duty. After they have followed their carnal passions and knocked down every limit and every restraint and live life the way they want to live it, and, and they have not and will not and cannot find what they're looking for. Joy, peace, contentment. They'll not find it. I must persuade others. I have a duty to persuade others. You have a duty to persuade people. And this is probably where most people are going to get most uncomfortable with this sermon today. But who are you working on to convince them you've got an answer? You have found the water that satisfies their thirst. Who are you working on? You're working on anybody? You're trying to convince them, hey, I can see you're in trouble. I can see you're miserable. I want to tell you there's an answer to your needs. If you will turn your life over to Jesus Christ, he'll walk with you and he will heal and he will deliver and he will, he will be your counsel. He will be your guide. He will be your joy. Are you working on anybody? I have an obligation. I must persuade others. And we get evangelistic about silly things. We can get evangelistic about some product we sell. We can get evangelistic about the, the best restaurant we found in the Quad City. We can get evangelistic about vitamins, diet pills. First church I ever pastored, it was uh, a lot of very, very retired people. And when I came to church and tried to be a part of their conversation, all I could do is listen as they talked about the new denture cream they found. (laughs) Honest to goodness. Or the new bargain deal on the Oats, older adult transportation service, Oats bus, how they found the... And they had all of these things that pertain to... They were excited about it. I tried to share their joy, but it was very shallow. But I wonder if we're excited about Jesus. Do we want to share him with the world as much as we want to share all the fun things we found and all the secret miracle things that work for us and you drink this stuff and you feel like a new person? What does God expect of me? He expects me to endure. He expects me to be real. And He expects me to win others. That is so simple. That's the ABCs of what this is all about. But it doesn't hurt to keep going back to the ABCs because I think sometimes we get a little sloppy. No matter where you are in your walk with Jesus Christ today, There's a possibility that some point in this sermon has really resonated with you. Maybe you've got A and B down good, but C you're a little struggling on. I don't know. I don't know what the Holy Spirit's speaking to you. But the question is, what does God expect of me? Are you doing your best? That's all it's about. Are you doing your best? 
You want to please God? Real quickly, is anybody here that you're struggling in your faith? Struggling in your walk? Maybe the Holy Spirit has just alerted you to something.